that you're here this morning with us. If you have your Bible or your phone, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a couple of chapters there together. Um, so excited. You know, every, every day you sort of have some unexpected things happen. I got, I got here to first service. I'm looking over our very detailed down the second uh, schedule. And, and I've got an extra 15 minutes to preach. So I'm like, this is a great Sunday. And then I come in here for this service and I look and I've got less than 15 minutes to preach. And so um, then I finally look at the top of the schedule and Jeremy's still going by 8.30 and 10.30 from last week, okay? So actually we're right on target. We're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I love the Gospel of Luke. I'm so excited about us getting into it. And I hope you will join us in this, not only in service, but outside of service. A couple years ago, Stephanie and I had the great privilege to visit Florence, Italy. And, and when you go to Florence, something you don't want to miss is Michelangelo's David. You can see a picture there of that. I might add a very strategic picture of Michelangelo's David. And, and, and you want to get there because that's the big thing to, that's the thing that you want to go see this statue. And um, the only problem is you can't just be dropped off and run in. You've you got to go through all these different hallways of all this art. At least someone like me didn't really care much about. And, and then finally you get to the hallway that leads to David. And show this next picture. Here's that hallway. And the hallway that leads to David is made of all these unfinished Michelangelo's statues that are actually called the unfinished slaves. They're imperfect, as we used to say in the old days, they're undone and they're not ready. And here's the point I want you to see this morning. As we approach Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, to get to Jesus is quite a few verses. We're going to have to go through some unfinished and undone people. And what I want you to see this morning is, is Luke has a point with beginning his gospel this way. And I hope you see that as we study along. Let's, let's, let's walk through that hallway and that entrance with Luke. We're going to meet some unexpected characters, first of all. Uh, think about this. Luke himself was a Gentile. I mean, uh, Luke was not expected to, to write half of the New Testament. He was an outsider. Then we've met this guy named Theopolis, who's either not a Christian or a young Christian unsure about his faith, who's saying, Luke, would you help prove my faith for me? And then we see Zechariah and Elizabeth. These are an older couple. They're barren. They've not been blessed with children. An angel finally says to them, you're going to have a child, John the Baptist. And um, Zechariah doesn't believe him. And so this guy, with this lack of faith, is struck, struck dumb. And then we actually encounter Mary, who maybe we don't realize this, but was probably 13 or 14 years old. Can you imagine that journey into puberty? You go from Barbie dolls to pregnancy overnight, and she catches herself as a, as a, 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 a young woman who's disgraced by this pregnancy. And then we see these shepherds along this hallway. That they were simply the, the riffraff of the day. There were probably very few people more despised than shepherds. They had a dirty, menial job. And especially to Orthodox Jews, they were looked down upon because their job was so dirty, there was no way they could keep the Pharisaic 
cleanliness laws. So nobody likes the shepherds. And yet they show up at the birth. And then you got John the Baptist. My goodness, what a rough character. He lives in the wilderness. He's dressed with camel hairs. He ate locusts and squirrels. I mean, it's just, a well, squirrels is not true. Am I not on? I'm hissing funny. Well, thank you, brother. I don't like to hiss funny. And I wish I would laughed about the squirrel. <laughs> that would have made me feel a whole lot better. Thank you. Am I hissing funny now, guys? Thank you very much. I'm sorry if you had to put up with this. Let's start all over. Stephanie and I were visiting Florida. <laughs> No, we, we won't do this. Okay, so we've got these unexpected characters that show up. Again, there's a point, and here's the unexpected point of the Gospel of Luke. It's that the Gospel is for all. It's for everybody. The Jewish people don't anticipate that this Messiah is for more than just them. Look at a couple of verses with me. They won't be on the screen. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And look how Luke couches this Gospel. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken to the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. You say, what, what's the big deal about that? Luke places his gospel not in Jewish history, but in world history. Like I told you last week, he's a careful historian. He names the people and the date of when this is going on. And so what he's saying there suddenly is this gospel is not just a Jewish gospel. And then you get to the birth. And we have this saying by the angel, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be, verse 10, great joy, catch what, for all the people. And then we get later when they're being blessed in the temple. And he says, the angel, this will be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. It's just unexpected. And so to be more specific here in the Gospel of Luke, the gospel is for everybody, but specifically this gospel is for outcast. Well, the thing that we're going to see as we study through this gospel the next few months is that God has a special heart for people who've been left out. In fact, we're going to see... Studying through this gospel, four groups of outsiders. Number one were Gentiles and Samarian, Samaritans. Nobody thought the gospel was going to be for Gentiles, more or less these half-breed Samaritans. And so you'll find out this, the gospel of Luke is the only gospel that tells us the story of what? The good, what? Samaritan. It only shows up there. The second group is women. Women show up all over the, the gospel of, of, of Luke. They're the, they're the first to hold Jesus at the birth, they're the last at the cross, and they're the first at the empty tomb. And, and so the gospel of Luke will say this to you, Jesus reveres women and will elevate their role. Jesus actually allows them to learn from him a rabbi that was unheard of. Number three is sinners... And tax collectors, sinners, the general term, tax collectors, the worst of the sinners. And so in the Gospel of Luke is the only gospel that mentions this chief tax collector, this wee little man, Zacchaeus. 
And it's the only gospel that tells us about one of the thieves being penitent. What's he trying to say? This thing is for sinners. And and then number four, there's a reverence for the poor. One of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke will mention poor or the danger of riches. Now listen, this was shocking news. It was shocking that God is saying, not subtly at all, here are the people I choose. You ever remember when you're a kid, you know, and they're choosing teams, and maybe you weren't very athletic? And, you know, you know it, it always comes down to this, you know, or maybe it was just one of the sports you were bad at and everybody knew you were. And so, you know, they've chosen all the athletic guys. Then they've chosen the athletic girls. And you're still standing there. And finally, one of the team captains just says, okay, you guys just split up and go on whatever team you want. <laughs> Most of y'all must not have been there. I've been there. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. It, it, it's, it's about, and, and what's so cool is the day where your friend's the captain, and they go, hey, buddy, I want you first. And you just sort of puff your chest out and walk up like you're the major jock. Well, it's got to be shocking to these guys that this is the group of people that Jesus is specially choosing. And in this group, there could be no one more shocked than Mary. I mean, think about this. I mean, of, of all the Jewish women who have ever lived and who lived then, here's this 13, 14-year-old girl who's chosen to bear the Son of God. And, and guys, if you read the story, I mean, she's shocked when the angel Gabriel first comes and says what we would think is good news, that you've been chosen by God. The Bible says that she was greatly troubled. Now, some translations say she was really disturbed. Because, number one, normally an angel coming to visit you is not a good sign. And number two, she can't believe she's an unwed, engaged girl that this is going to happen to her. And so Gabriel tries to comfort her, and she submits herself to God. But as soon as she submits herself to God, she runs to a safe place. She runs, remember, Elizabeth, the one that's compared to John the Baptist? Elizabeth is her relative. And so she runs out of Jerusalem, out of Bethlehem, to, to get to Elizabeth. And, and she gets there, and as soon as she walks in the door, John the Baptist, who is in Elizabeth's womb, don't let me say what I said first service, tomb. <laughs> it was bad. Okay, the, the baby jumps. Uh, John the Baptist jumps because he knows it's Jesus. And Elizabeth affirms to Mary that this is a cool deal. I mean, listen to what Elizabeth said. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the child you bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who's believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary is shocked, and now she believes. And this is incredible. She's over the shock, and now it's like, whoa, God, you chose me. I mean, she's, she feels pretty, pretty good, and she 
just wants to glorify God. And so in the middle of all the birth narratives is this, this song we're going to study today called the, the Magnificat. And um, it starts off with just this amazing praise of God. And we actually have a song called the Magnificat that I've asked uh, our worship team to come and sing with us. We want you to sing along with this. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful hymn. Why don't you stand and stretch your legs and let's sing together and celebrate the coming of Jesus. Amen. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And that's the beginning of the Magnificat. The, the problem, though, with that hymn, and there's really not a problem, it's beautiful glory to God, but the, the hymn stops in the middle of Mary's song. And so what we miss out on is this, this song that truly is revolutionary. That everything God has tried to communicate through Luke about these unexpected characters and this unexpected point is made in an even more vivid way in Mary's song. In fact, I want us to, to read that. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. You'll catch this. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to all those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Now, put your seatbelt on, okay? Because there's an abrupt change in this hymn. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. My friends, and you continue with the hymn. Not only is Mary saying, God, thank you for choosing me. You're an amazing God that you could use someone like me. But God, I realize it's crazy for you to choose me. But it's not just crazy for you to choose me. The people that you are going to choose are going to turn this world upside down. The people that you are going to focus on, it's going to be revolutionary. So as we look at this, this is actually a revolutionary song. Uh, frankly, it turns social, economic, political worlds upside down. In fact, to make this more vivid, a lot of times I love to go to the message translation. How about you? Because sometimes he's able to take that Greek word and just make it really stand out. So I want to give you five phrases about this revolution. Number one, he scattered the bluffing braggarts. The NIV said, he scattered those who are proud. When Jesus comes, the people who think they've got it together are the very people that will reject him and be rejected by God. He is going to scatter the proud. And the second, he's knocked tyrants off their high horses. The NIV, rulers from their thrones. The people who are in power will be knocked out of power. And then the opposite will be, he's pulled victims out of the mud. Not only has he scattered the proud, he has lifted the humble. It's a complete reversal of life. 
Next, starving poor sat down at a banquet. He filled the hungry. Starving poor, the ones who had nothing to eat, all of a sudden have more than enough to eat. And watch this one. The callous rich were left out in the cold. He sent the rich away empty. That's revolutionary thought, guys. You go, buddy, what, what's, what's going on here, man? Why is God being so tough on the rich and the, the well-to-do and the proud and so good to the poor and the humble? My friends, here's what I think you see. I think you see the raw emotions of a father whose children have been neglected or left out. I mean, if, if you're a parent and you have children and you ever witness your child being slighted, they're left out of a place they ought to be included. They are hurt in the midst of something. I'm telling you as a parent, I'd rather somebody hurt me than hurt my child. And, and God is much the same way. And so uh, this, this revolutionary talk comes from a, a heart of God that says, Oh my goodness, these people you guys have left out? These people that you look down on, these poor people you think it's their fault because they're poor, these outsiders that you think belong outside, let me tell you, they are my children. And so as we see this, this revolutionary language, a really interesting historical point is the same language used in this, these verses to describe Jesus was used to describe the most powerful world in, man in the ancient world, Augustus Caesar. There's an inscription we found from the first century. He's described as Savior, God. Actually, the inscription says, good news will come through Augustus Caesar. And so when they come around and Jesus is described with the words that to that point had only described Augustus Caesar, it's revolutionary. That's why E. Stanley Jones, the famous Methodist missionary to India, said, The Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. William Temple, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury, who sent British missionaries across the world, especially to oppressed people in India, instructed his missionaries to not read the Magnificat in public. And just as late as the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned the reading of this hymn in public. Why? Because it's revolutionary. It says everything should be turned upside down. And Mary's revolutionary song, I want to just go and tell you, sets the tone for this entire book. Listen to me. We forget this in the land where we claim that all men are created equal. Do, do you realize what a radical concept that was? And, and so, so we forget how radical it is for someone to come along and say, everybody's of equal worth. It doesn't matter your economic background. It does not matter your race. It does not matter your social status. It doesn't matter which caste you were born into or which family you were born into. My friends, it was, it was so crazy. And if we'll be honest today, despite the claim of our Declaration of Independence, we still are waiting, even 50 years after the death of Martin Luther King, for it to become a reality in our own nation. It's still revolutionary words. 
And I'm telling you, if we will listen closely, these words will be revolutionary in our lives. They will cause us to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. These are dangerous words. And so we're invited by Luke to follow this revolutionary figure, Jesus, whose greatest criticism by the authorities is, guess what? He hangs out with the wrong people. He hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and Samaritans, women. And the Pharisees know for sure this means he's not God because if God came to the earth, God is too holy to hang out with those people. Certainly God would be hanging out with us. And Jesus turns everything upside down. Now, my friends, our challenge is to continue this revolution. Our challenge as disciples of Jesus is that we be as revolutionary as Jesus. Can I ask you this question? I'm asking myself the question. I know my answer. Are you revolutionary in this area? I don't know that I am. I want to be. So continue this revolution. Here's what we must do. We must show up at unexpected places with unexpected people. You see, our temptation along this line, maybe this is a part of the fall, but all of us are predisposed to gravitate toward people that are like us. People that are the same social economic status, the same race, the same looks, the same... We just naturally gravitate toward those people. But listen to me, it's, it's the church of our Lord that's supposed to be revolutionary. We're not supposed to look that way. And yet too often, our churches more resemble a college social club or a fraternity or sorority than the revolutionary family of Jesus. Not a place where you pick the people that are like you, but a place where God deliberately picked the people that were different. So we're going to show up in unexpected places. One of my good ministry friends is Milton Jones. Milton Jones preached for a long time in Seattle, Washington. They were studying this kind of material and decided as a church that they would go minister to the poorest people in their community. They all lived on Skid Row. You've heard about that. Skid Row's name did not come because of poverty. Skid Row came in Seattle, Washington because it was a place by the ocean where people would throw the fish and they would go down to the boat to be taken somewhere else. They would skid down into the boat. Years later, it's the, the, the poorest section of town, and so that's where we get the phrase Skid Row. And so Milton and some of the members of his church end up at Skid Row with these bags for lunch. And so they're giving them out. Milton gives it out to a guy, and a guy that he gives it out to says, I can't believe you're here doing this. And Milton's a little taken back. He doesn't recognize the guy. He said, why do you say that? And the guy says, do you not remember me? Twelve years ago, I was a part of your church. But he'd gone so far downhill in life, he was unrecognizable. And so he said to Milton, I did not expect of all people to see you in this place. Milton Jones left that scene heartbroken that the very people Jesus would have gone to were the very people who didn't expect to see him.
And so, my friends, if we're going to be Jesus' people, we're going to show up in those unexpected places. And we are going to interact with unexpected people. There should be friendships in this church that would never have happened outside this church. It's got to span age limitations. It's got to span economic differences. It's got to span racial differences. We've got to be proactive in doing that. That's what the Gospel of Luke says to me. Because it's not that Jesus doesn't love these other people, but he knows they're not the ones that have been abused. And he actually knows it's the rich, proud people who who aren't open to the gospel. And so he proactively reaches out to the people that are broken. I would challenge you and I to do this. Go on your social media page, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, whatever. Who are your friends? Do they all look like you? Could I ask you this question? Convicts me. Who are the last five people you've invited into your home? Anybody look different than you? Anybody from a different economic level, a different race? If I may, can I ask this question? Who are you going to ask to go to lunch with you today? Is it just our buddies and people that we're naturally drawn to? Or are we going to be a revolutionary people that says, you know what? We're, we're going to be peop- we're going to, we're going to demonstrate this radical revolution of Jesus that all people are equal. That's one thing I love about being a part of a landmark. That's part of who we are. Many of you over 20 years ago were a part of saying, you know what, we're going to break some barriers down. We're going to inner city Montgomery. And so many of you through inner city and Compassion 21, you gave your money and you gave your time. And though that group is, is, is now closed, let me tell you this, we need to celebrate those of you who led that way. So many of you are a part of now hope-inspired ministry, and we, we want to partner with this ministry. This is an amazing ministry that says, we're not just going to come down here and give you a handout. We're going to give you a hand up. We're going to help you learn the skills that you can get off the streets of Montgomery, and you can go be employed, and you can know how to work at a job and know how to uh, give an interview. And then something really exciting coming up for us as a church, we're, we're re-looking at short-term mission trips overseas. And, and we're, we're beginning to partner with an organization that we believe will come to fruition that completely looks different at this. Their idea is instead of just going to all these different places around the world and us serving them and nothing really changing for them and us going home and we just feel better and over our guilt, why don't we pick up a, a community? And why don't we send wave of wave of short-term missions there? And when we get to the community, let's not be the Americans coming to the rescue. Let's work with the community of churches there to find out the needs so that when something great happens, it's not that we came and did it, it's the church that did it. And so we'll work behind the scenes. If you're an engineer, you might be able to go there and help them with the engineering project. If you're a farmer, you could go help with the farming. If you're a school teacher, you could go improve their schools. If you're a coach, you could go coach. And, and so what we can do, sending teenagers and college students and adults and sometimes families all together, is, is just invest in a community over at least a decade so that things really change for them. And we don't just assuage our guilt. And then I'm so excited right now about our, our, our renewed focus on this neighborhood that we live in. 
You know, when this church was built here in 1992, this was a completely different place. When that elementary school behind us was built in 1996, for many years it was arguably the best elementary school in Montgomery. Today it's an underperforming school. And we have the opportunity right here in our neighborhood to do what Jesus has called us to do. My friends, that's the heart of this church. That's the heart of Jesus. And that's what we will do. Because let's be honest while we're talking about this. We are all tempted to be inwardly focused. Most churches are all about inward. And so I come to church, and my question is, did I like it or not like it? Did I like this style, this song? Did I like this class? Did I like this sermon? You know, it's all about what I like. Does this church really meet the needs of my family? Are there enough cool people in this church that I like to hang out with, or I'll just go find a cooler church? I mean, my friends... That, that's the, the, the tendency of every church. And, and, and for us to be obedient to this revolutionary song, we're going to have to be different. So the theme of our message today is, is rather simple. It's from the outside in. That could be a great theme for the book of Luke. It goes all the way through. Outsiders become insiders. And so this morning, it's, we prepare to sing and this front row is open for you. If you're ready to follow Jesus, if, or if you need some prayers this morning, I want to talk to these two groups of people. First of all, I want to talk to you if you found a lot of your life being an outsider. You weren't the person picked first. You, you didn't have the, the best grades. You struggled somehow through, through life, and often you found yourself being the outsider looking in. You weren't the cool kid, and you're not the cool adult, and so it's been difficult. I want to tell you, that Jesus has a special love for you. And if you find yourself, maybe because of life circumstances even this morning, and you have become an outsider, maybe you weren't before, but now things have changed in your life, even maybe at church, you come here and you see all these people, and you come here and you, you consider yourself an outsider. My friend, that's not what we want. That's not what Jesus wants. And maybe today you come here and your life is all messed up. And, and because you don't have the money or the privilege to cover it up, it's obvious. You're, you're addicted to drugs or you're addicted to alcohol or your life's just out of control. And, and let me tell you, my friends, the heart of this church is for you. And if you need us to pray for you before you leave, please meet me on this front row. And so we don't want you to be an outsider. That's not Jesus' heart. And this morning, let me talk to the other group here. If you're an insider, if your life has traditionally gone the way it, you know, you'd want it to be, and you've just been successful on one step after the other, let me tell you guys, the real truth of this gospel is that every one of us are impoverished spiritually. Some of us have got enough things, or looks, or money to cover it up. And we're the ones in the most danger, according to the Gospel of Luke. Because we cover it up. And we come to church and we look like we have it together. And in both of these groups, let me say to you today, if you come to this church this morning, and if, pardon my language here, you feel all screwed up. You have come to the right place. The church, Jesus said, is for sinners, not saints. The church is for those that are broken. And so today... If you find yourself as an outsider and you need a group of people to love on you, I promise you will do it. 
If you're an insider, but your pride has kept you from confessing your sins, your pride has kept you from being on this front row. In fact, you may be one of those people in this church that says, I would never sit on that row. God help you. Jesus has got a problem with that. And so today, if you're ready to let the mask off, and you're ready to say, guys, I hurt just the way you hurt. I struggle the way you struggle. And I need your problem, need your prayers today. Meet me up here. You see, what we're all trying to do is get to Jesus. And to get to Jesus, we have to walk through brokenness and unfinished work, which is us. But the Master said, I've come for you. If you need our prayers today, would you come right now while we stand and sing?